Welcome to Back Porch Bible Studies, where friends come and talk about what the Bible says about our God. My name is Deborah Geisels, and I'll be your host on this weekly podcast. You know, it's been said that the heart can't love what the mind doesn't know. So here, we'll study to know our God, and to know Him is to love Him. So, grab a drink and settle in for an afternoon of catching up and talking about our great God. Welcome, friend, to my back porch. From the Message Bible, Paul declares, My response is to get down on my knees before the Father, this magnificent Father who parcels out all heaven and earth. I ask him to strengthen you by his spirit, not in a brute strength, but a glorious inner strength, that Christ will live in you as you open the door and invite him in. And I ask him that with both feet planted firmly on love, you'll be able to take in with all the followers of Jesus the extravagant dimensions of Christ's love. Reach out and experience the breadth Test its length, plumb the depths, rise to the heights, live full lives, full in the fullness of God. God can do anything you know, far more than you could ever imagine or guess or request in your wildest dreams. He does it not by pushing us around, but by working within us, His Spirit, deeply and gently. All right, Paul then says in verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. Paul prayed in the posture of bowing his knees. Is this the most holy way you can pray? No. Is it the only way you can pray on your knees? No. I think my grandma B thought so. She's like, let's pray. And she'd always drop her knees. I'm like, okay. But it is a position of humility. Paul and Solomon both are found praying with their hands raised. Remember when Solomon dedicated the temple? He starts out with his arms raised and he ends up on his knees. When you're praying in your closet, not when anybody else is around, raise your hands and pray. I talk to the Lord with my hands when nobody's in the room. Like it helps me talk to him. I don't know. I, I, I tend to talk with my hands anyway. But be you. Be you when you talk to him. If you talk to people with your hands, raise your hands when you talk to him in prayer. Go to your knees sometimes in prayer. If you have bad knees, throw a cushion down. If you can't get up, don't go down. (laughs) (laughs) Have you ever prayed flat out, laying flat out on the ground? Have you prayed while fasting? All of those are positions that I don't think are any holier than others, but there is something about being in those positions of expressing your love and your submission, submission to him. Absolutely. So Paul goes to his knees. It's an, um, the humility, I think, that came over him when he considered God's great plan of salvation and his place in that plan, because he's revealing this, right? He's, he's telling us all about it in this letter. I think when he considered it all and how God's work is unstoppable, even when Paul's in prison, I mean, he's like, I'm not, I, I, I'm not even discouraged. I got called. 
I got blinded in, on the road to Damascus. God checked my head, spent three years with Jesus being discipled by him so that I could think correctly, so I could teach correctly. And I'm going to get whipped. I'm going to get stoned. I'm going to be imprisoned. I'm going to starve. I'll be shipwrecked. And Paul's like, I'm so humbled by that. He counted me worthy to carry this torch for him. And you know what? When Jesus gave us the Great Commission, he counted us worthy to do the same thing, to do the same thing regardless of what happens in our lives, who comes in and who goes out of our lives. In verse 14 and 15, he uses two words, which are kind of funny. I didn't know this before. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven derives its name. What is that talking about? Before, he's going to bow his knees before the Father, whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Okay, this is, this is cool. Father is pater, P-A-T-E-R. Family is petra. They're the same word. This is the definition in the Greek for father, pater, the founder of a family or tribe, the progenerator of a people. <laughs> okay? Family is the patra, P-A-T-R-I-A, is lineage running back to some progenerator, the reference being to all those who are spiritually related to God the Father, he being the author of their spiritual relationship to him as his children, they being united to one another in family fellowship. Now let me read that again. I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. I think when Paul pulled back the curtain a little bit in verse 10, remember in 10, so that the manifold wisdom of God may be known through the church to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Remember when, when he just pulls that curtain back just a smidge and he says, there's an, there's an invisible audience that we are living to prove God's glory. I think while he's there, he took a peek at others that are in the heavenly places. I think he saw some of the family already there. I think when he peeks around the corner, some of the other residents in heaven, the family that were already home, both Jews and Gentiles, I think he's like, oh, they're here. They're here. He could see the celestial beings, the angels, because he talks about them. And now I think he's pulled that curtain just a little bit, and he sees the family of God living there, those who have already gone ahead. Why do I say this? Well, back in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12 too, he says, I know a man, and it's so funny. Okay, he's going to talk in third person here. And he's going to be, mm -mm, mm -mm. like, Paul always said what he said. He always meant what he said, and he always articulated it. It, it was part of his um, pharisaical training as a rabbi to speak the way Paul spoke. <laughs> but when he speaks in 2 Corinthians 12 too, he speaks in third person, and he hems and haws through it. L listen to what he says. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, 
which man may not utter. Well, what is that all about? It was Paul. Paul was the guy he's talking about here that went up to the third heaven and there are things that he can't talk about because it can't be uttered. There aren't any words. When he went to the third heaven and he saw, he has seen these things. You know, he doesn't ever talk about it. But you think about how he opened Ephesians, right? We are given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. And then he talks in, verse, in chapter 3, verse 10, about these rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Guys, I think he saw with his eyes. I think when he was with Jesus and this 2 Corinthians 12 stuff that he can't talk about because there aren't words, there aren't words in his mouth that can articulate what he saw and thought in his brain. And to translate that to us, I don't know that we have capacity for it. But I think every now and then it seeps out in his letters. And I think that's what's happened right here. I think his presence with God, whether in the body or not, only God knows, is a little bit of this. So I don't think he's using his heavenly imagination. I think Paul's coming in on fact here. And he's just pulling it back a little bit so we can see it. When he says that the Father in heaven, whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, he's like, we're in it. We're in it with them and they're in it with us. That we are still united, even though there is this curtain between us right now. Someday, the curtain will be gone. And we will live with them that are in heaven and on earth. And I think that's why he just throws this little bit in here on verse 15. For whom every family in heaven and on earth gets its name. I think Paul had a big picture of redemption. I think he saw it. I think he... <laughs> okay, now this is just me imagining. But... What if he saw Abraham up there? Abraham was real. He wasn't just a folklore. He was, I mean, can you imagine Paul going, Oh, look, there's Noah and Sarah. Oh, there's all the family that has gone before him. I mean, he had to be just like, Oh, this is real. This is real, y'all. And he, in this letter, I think he's going, it's real for you too. You too will be in heaven. That this family thing is, just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not there. It's real. All right, verse 16. According to the riches of his glory. Oh my goodness, you guys. Oh my goodness. Paul is not praying that you get the riches. We already have them in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are being strengthened according to those riches. Let me say that again. Paul is not asking that we get the riches. Girls, he summarized that in verse 3, right after his introduction of who's writing the letter and to whom it is. The first thing he bouts off is that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. That's the summary of all that he's going to say in chapters 1 and 2. Because after that, he's saying, okay, look, these riches... You were chosen from the foundation of the world. You were adopted into the family of God. You were redeemed and forgiven. The mystery of the redemption has been revealed to you in the inheritance you've already obtained. You have been sealed with the Holy Spirit, seated in the heavenly places with Christ. You are his workmanship created for good works, 
and you are part of his kingdom, his family, and his temple. Girls, we already got it. We have already acquired his riches. What Paul is saying here, he is not praying that you get the riches. You've already got them. We are being strengthened according to those riches. That's elevating the value we place on our salvation. That'll keep us from discouragement. Do you remember the story about the widow who gave her two little pennies? Do you remember what Jesus said about her? She gave everything. She gave everything. I think when Jesus saw that widow giving everything, there was something in his heart that he and the Father and the Holy Spirit, they had given everything for us. And I think he identified that with her. I bet there was a precious passion of love that he had for that woman when he saw that because she was never more like the Father than she was right then when she gave everything. So out of the riches, it isn't like he's... <laughs> He, sa he says, you know, I got the cattle on a thousand hills, right? But I'll give you one cow. That's not how our God's working. He's like, what's mine? Yours. You inherit it. You are co-heirs with Christ. So Paul's not praying that we work out of a generated energy, but from what we already have. You already have it. You already are valued and worthy and entrusted. You already have that. Then he goes on to say that according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with his power through his spirit. This spiritually strengthened, the term strengthened in the Greek is K-R-A-T-A-O-O. -O. Now, Anytime you see a Greek word that has the double O's, it means, okay, okay, let me tell you what the word means. Strengthened is the word, means to be made mighty, made mighty. The verb ends in two O's, which conveys the thought of something being beyond just being strengthened. It is strengthened. Do you see the difference? It's beyond being strengthened. It is strengthened. That's rich. You are strong. He's saying that, it, that you would recognize the power within you. And we don't. We poo-poo the power within us. We poo-poo the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells in us as believers because nobody else has it. Non-believers don't have it, so I must have to follow that run. No. No. Paul's like, recognize the power that is in you, because it is you. All right, then the word is aorist passive infinitive. Yeah, big fancy words. Greeks defined everything. But aorist means it's true of you. Passive means it has been done to you. You can't do it. It's God doing it to you. Remember in Philippians 2.13 where it says, For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He's doing it in us. We can't do, we can't, we don't have the will to do. God builds that into us. Now we just need to access it. So what Paul is, is saying here, that, that the riches of his glory to be strengthened with his power through his spirit, it has the idea that this is, 
that you have, um, how do I want to say this? That you are to get what's on the inside out. That you are to dig in to what God has already given you, resting in his strength, in his wisdom, in his faithfulness, and do it. So it is to, to get what is on the inside to the outside so that you might show to be strong. That's how the world's going to know we're different. Otherwise, if we're working out of the same fallenness that every unbeliever is working out of, we're going to look like every unbeliever out there. And God won't be recognized. But when we work out of the strength that is in us, when we acknowledge the power of God in us, I don't care what the tapes are running in my head. Y'all got them, right? You were told as a child this and that. Or you have told yourself this and that about who you are and who you're not. There's a greater power in you. Who are you going to listen to? The tapes in your head? The stories that you've written? Or are you going to listen to the spirit working in you? I'm going to go back to Noah for a minute here. The man had never seen rain. It had never rained on the earth. He lived in a desert and he's building a boat. <laughs> how, how utterly ridiculous would that have appeared? But he worked out of the strength that he had been created in. We can do it too. It is the ability to be strengthened with the power through his spirit. It's the ability to do that which we could never have done before. The capacity, the divine ability to live a life on a higher plane. Wouldn't you like to be living on a higher plane for his glory? All right, he goes on to say that all of this strength is in the inner man. It's the spiritual part of you, the made alive by Christ part of you. In 2 Corinthians 4, 16, it says, Therefore, we do not lose heart. He's saying the same thing again, right? Don't lose heart because of my tribulations. And he's praying this over them. He says, therefore, in 2 Corinthians 4, 16, Therefore, do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. That's the spiritual part of us. I loved what Peter wrote in 2 Peter 1, 4. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might be partakers of the divine nature. He was just talking about inner man. Now we may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Guys, that very divine nature that is of the Godhead, that is living in us, is our access point. Not in my gumption, not in my grit. I don't even have to have grit. I got God. That's big stuff. That's big picture stuff. According to the riches of his glory, as we yield to the Holy Spirit of God who resides in our spirit, as we surrender to him, as we allow him to control us, we experience the fullness of all that he has given us in Christ. And the whole, the whole purpose of the redemption is to glorify God and to give us that fullness of that life, that relationship with him. God wants us to be filled with him. Do you hear Paul's challenge to live in the fullness of Christ? I think we hear that churchy words and we're like, yeah, in the fullness of Christ, yeah. 
Yeah, on the fullness of Christ. Yeah, I live in the fullness of Christ. You live in the fullness of Christ. Yeah, I live in the fullness of Christ. We flip it off like, oh yeah, it's cool. I'm cool. I have the fullness of Christ. Then why are we worried? Why do we become discouraged? Now I'm not saying those things are are in of themselves wrong, but sitting in them, to have that worry about what might happen or what might not happen. We can't know what we don't know. I know that sounds redundant, doesn't it? But I often think I know what I don't know. I know what the future is going to be because thus and such. I have figured it out because that's how I think. But God's going, Dob, you don't know what you don't know. Stop pretending like you do. Well, I'm not going to worry about something I don't know. Anybody with a brain knows that's... That's a waste of time. So if I can't know, I can't know what I don't know (laughs) until God reveals it to me, then I'm going to have to walk in faith with him. But we tend to, to sit back in it and get all wrapped up in it. And then we're not living in the strength that we were given. The fullness of Christ is you can be at peace when you don't know what the future is. Do you remember in James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, where he says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Count it joy. That's that idea of having your thoughts governed by joy. Why? Because God's got it. Because you belong to him. That's how you can count it all joy. doesn't mean it's going to be joyous time. And he says when you fall into various trials. That fall is so cool because it doesn't mean fall on the ground. It's a fall in a place where there's no bottom and no sides. You can't push off. If it were just the fall on the floor, I could push myself back up. But when James is writing in 1 James chapter 1 verse 2, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, he's talking about something more akin to being in the middle of the ocean and then dropped off. You can't touch the bottom, you can't fly out, and you can't swim to shore. That's when you count it all joy. Why? Because of this strength that is in you. That's how you get there. That's how you look different to the unbeliever. That's how you live the fullness of Christ. Why does Paul want us to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. All right, let's break this down. Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. To dwell means to have a permanent home. Jesus wants to settle down into our hearts, not just come and visit. He wants to settle in, permanent residence. We need, ooh, listen to this carefully. We need spiritual strength to let Christ dwell within us because there is something in us that resists the influence of the indwelling Jesus Christ. That's some hard news the sinful nature. It's that two-year-old inside me that says, I'll do it myself. So here, let me read that again. Let Let this settle in. We need spiritual strength to let Christ dwell within us because there is something in us that resists the influence of the indwelling Jesus. That something can be conquered as the Spirit of God gives us the victory in faith. Girls, we are going to do a Romans 7, 14, that Paul says, I want to do good, but I don't do good, and I do what I don't want to do. And 
that warring within us is consistent until the day of glory, that, that we need the power of the Holy Spirit living in us so that we can submit, so that we can be influenced by the indwelling Holy Spirit. Otherwise, we battle with him all the time. And we need to be in a habit of surrendering to the Spirit. We need to take those thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. He goes on to say, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love. <laughs> being rooted and grounded in love. What does that mean? I could tell you a whole bunch of Greek words that I looked at. That love is agape love. Rooted and grounded. What is rooted? What is Let me tell you a story. Who knows what a sequoia is? Our California girls. The sequoias are the largest trees in the world. They grow to be over 300 feet tall. That is the size, for you that live locally, that is about the size of the Kettering Building, downtown Dayton. It is over 26 floors of a building. That's how tall these trees grow. Massive. Okay, that's just height. 36 feet wide. It's like a covered bridge. Yeah, it's huge. Some of them over 2,000 years old. Their roots only go down 10 feet. But listen, these trees are 300 feet tall, but their roots only go down 10 feet. I mean, our ceilings, you know, an average house ceiling's nine foot. Dandelions go deeper than that. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so how do they sustain the California winds? While their roots don't go down deep, they extend out about 100 feet, wrapping up and entangling around the roots of other trees. They hold on to each other. Is that just beautiful? Guys, if Paul had only known that, if he'd only gone to California... But he says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded, hooked up in love. And you know, as he goes on to tell you this, he, he talks about um, the rest of this chapter is how we interact with other believers. We need to be sequoias. That's why we can't be alone. We cannot be alone. So yeah, Paul, Paul's talking sequoia when he's talking about this whole unity of the Jews and the Gentiles and the believing people. He's talking sequoia talk. All right. Verse 17 says, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able, oh, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth of that love. What? He's like, yeah, so you can comprehend it. Huh. Look at verse 19. And to know, that's a no thing, the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. So he's got comprehend, know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Whew. He's got some big words in here that don't make any sense to me. How can we comprehend the surpassable knowledge? But I think Paul has a little kick in this. Remember we were talking about when he was when he went up to the third heaven, that it blew his mind. 
I mean, the purple head blowing thing, right? Blew his mind. And he's like, I'm praying that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints, the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth of the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. (laughs) He's talking in circles here. But there is a place for us to put our minds to, that his love is greater than we can imagine. We're going to start with our own love for somebody we adore, right? It's the only way we can relate. How much does a mama love her child? How much does a husband and wife love one another? What is that unity that God formed from the beginning of the world, that family unit? How much do you love? It is only a smidgen of the love that God has for us. But he's praying that we can comprehend. And I don't believe that Paul wants us to have an analytical analysis of the love of God. I don't think that's what he's talking about here. I don't think that's the comprehension he's expecting us to have, an analytical analysis of the love of God. We can do it and people try. It's beyond that. How is it beyond that? Because it is experienced. It's that, I can't put any words to it, feeling. That it is so great. And the more we walk with God, the more we walk in the power of his Holy Spirit, the more we wrap our mind around how we are rooted in the love of Christ, we're going to begin to have a comprehension, a feeling for, an inclination to the love of Christ. He wants us to read not in the translation and to like look at the message. So the message here says, and I ask him that with both feet planted firmly on love, you'll be able to take in with all followers of Jesus the extravagant dimensions of Christ's love. Reach out and experience the breadth. Test its length, plumb the depths, rise to the heights. Live full lives, full in the fullness of God. Charles Spurgeon said, Alas, to a great many religious people, the love of Christ is not a solid, substantial thing at all. It is a beautiful fiction a sentimental belief, a formal theory. But to Paul, it was real. It was substantial. It was a measurable fact. He had considered its ways, and that way, and the other way, and the next way, and it was evidently real to him, whatever it might be to others. God's love is wide enough to include every person. His love is long enough to last through eternity. God's love is deep enough to reach the worst sinner. And God's love is high enough to take us to heaven. And to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness. There is only one way to live in that fullness. I think it comes from recognizing how big our God is. And I think we have to ask ourselves, how big is your God? You know, in my little world, and I'll close with this, I live in my house, in my neighborhood. I love my children and my grandchildren, my husband, my family, my church. I know a few gals down in Cincinnati, and I know a few gals up in Dayton. I have a friend who is out in the Philippines doing missionary work. My world is this big, tiny. Because even though I feel like I know everything that's going on, I watch the news, I read the articles, I follow Facebook, you know, I'm in tuned, but my world is so tiny. It is so tiny that my next door neighbor, our worlds intersect. I don't have a clue what goes on in her world. I don't know all her people. I don't know all her loves. I don't know all her hurts. My world 
is so tiny. I think it's big and I become consumed by my world. And I think Paul's telling us here, there's more. There's so much more. When he pulls back the curtain of heaven, there's more. There's so much more. When he says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus into all generations forever and ever. Amen. Ladies, we need to let our God get big. <laughs> Just for a minute, have you ever considered the world beyond your world? And, and maybe this week, just take a mental exercise and think of the world beyond your world. Think of your neighbors and their worlds. Think of your country and other countries. And then let your mind wander to other creations. I was expanding my thought this week. Did you know, since they launched the Hubble telescope, that there is an estimate out there that there is between 100 and 200 billion, billion with a B, galaxies in the observable universe. That's a lot. I mean, we live in the Milky Way galaxy and we look into the stars and we think how vast that is. Some astronauts have tried to estimate the number of missed galaxies <laughs> in previous studies and come up with a total number of two trillion galaxies in the universe. This was published in February of 2023. So I don't know if they're right or wrong. I don't know how they do that. I don't know how you count billions and trillions. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not on my fingers. <laughs> but, but as you were saying earlier, to think about a God who created the galaxies that we can't even count, the stars that we can't even number, a child born from the union of two people and how everything within a seed will produce a sequoia. Our God is a big, big God. And so often we shrink him down, size him up to our own little worlds, to our own little bubbles. When we know the bigness, when we explore, let me say, the bigness of our God, the extent to which he has created and sustained. Can you imagine one of those galaxies going awry? Just one of them. What if the Milky Way just went awry? But he keeps all the galaxies. He can take care of what's going on in your life. I promise. I promise. We need to tap into the power of the Holy Spirit residing in us. And we need to let our God get big in our minds because he is a big, big, big God. May your perspective of our great God continue to grow, that you may be able to comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, that you may be filled up to the fullness of God. Please join us next time as we discover how we are to respond in a walk worthy of our calling. Back Porch Bible Studies is a ministry of women in Christian leadership. 
You can find this podcast on your favorite podcast form or go to womeninchristianleadership.com to find the many ways Women in Christian Leadership can help you grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Back Porch Bible Studies would like to thank their sponsor, the faith-based business of Millennium Metals in business to serve Christ.